Our gracious God and, and Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for uh, this time even now to be in your word and to hear the things that you have to say. God, we just pray for the work of your Holy Spirit. We, we have no confidence, Lord, in the things or even the words of men. Lord, we need to hear from you this day. And so we pray that you might speak to us, Lord, that you would uh, draw our hearts ever closer to you. We thank you, Father, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. In Table Talk, uh, not too long ago, uh, Burke Parsons made this point, and I think it's very appropriate. He said, Christianity is a religion of joy. Christianity is a religion of joy. He said, real joy comes from God who has invaded us, conquered us, and liberated us from eternal death and sadness, who has given us hope and joy because he has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit that he has given to us. So joy comes to us from God. It's not from within us. And if we look for joy within ourselves, I'll just tell you this, brothers and sisters, we'll be very sad because if we look within ourselves and we really take the time to, to focus and to contemplate and, and what is really in our hearts, what we will see is we will see sin. We will know who we really are. We'll see ourselves, you know, like nobody else sees us. We all look good, do we not? We, you guys are a good looking group here on Sunday morning. But in those moments, when nobody else is around and we really examine our hearts, we may see things that don't always look pleasant, that we would be ashamed of if it was known here on Sunday morning with everybody around. So we, we have joy that, you know, only when we look outside of ourselves, and that is at the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. So without Christ, joy is not only hard to find, I would suggest that it's impossible to find. The world desperately uh, seeks after joy and they don't know Christ. And so they end up looking for joy in, in all the wrong places. However, our joy comes from Christ as he has sought us and he has found us. And as he keeps us in our faith, we can't have joy apart from Christ because it doesn't exist. So it's not something that we can just conjure up because sometimes I hear Christians say, you guys just need to have more joy. Like it's something that we can just whip up on our own, you know, at our own desire. You know, I think also what people don't understand is, is that joy is, isn't just the absence of sadness. It's not just having a smile on your face. It is really the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And although the Holy Spirit produces joy in us, he often does so by humbling us because if he humbles us, then what happens is then we begin to take our eyes off of ourselves and we begin to focus upon our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So real joy occurs even in the midst of sadness. Um, it sometimes means even it comes in the midst of true repentance. And I remember the words of Charles Spurgeon where he said, I do not know when I am more perfectly happy than when I am weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. 
That's where he finds that joy is when he is at the foot of the cross. Joy comes in repentance and forgiveness and daily looking to the Lord Jesus Christ and living for his glory, not living for our own glory and doing what we want. And so I think that for many Christians, joy eludes them because we are often tempted to focus upon things that brings us pleasure and looking at other things that we think will bring us pleasure rather than making the Lord and Savior the focus of our lives. And if we live each day bearing the, the shame of yesterday as we think about our sins in the past or our anxieties and the things that we worry about that's coming up in the future, we'll never experience the joy that God gives us right now today that we can appreciate. So let us all be very quick to run to the cross and to seek the joy that only comes from Jesus Christ. Um, Burke Parsons uh, closed his comments. He said this. He said, uh, so let, um, yeah, he said, so let us always be quick to run to the cross to seek the joy that only Christ can give. For trying to find joy apart from Christ is like trying to find day without the sun. It just doesn't happen. You know, you have to have that. But unfortunately, that's not always the case for believers. And even unfortunately in the church, some churches work against that sense of joy. And that was true in the medieval church in the time of the Reformation. Uh, there was a lot of superstition that had been added to the Roman Catholic Church. And they believed in Jesus, but they believed uh, more needed to be done to be right with God. It was sort of Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus the worship of the saints. Jesus plus confession to the priests. Jesus plus, you know, paying your indulgences or whatever it might be. There were just certain things that you had to do. Jesus plus coming to the Lord's table. And so, you know, it was the Roman Catholic Church that, um, yes, did preach the cross and that Christ was necessary, but they sort of strayed in the sense that they thought that there needed to be another mediator between God and his people, and that was the church. That was the priests. That was the pope. That when Christ died, he did purchase our salvation. He did give us grace, but he didn't dispense it all. And so therefore, it was the church's responsibility to come in and to dispense that grace as people perform certain religious practices. And so the relationship with God was not so much a joyous relationship, but it was really one that was a religious burden upon them. And so it was against these things that Martin Luther and others said, wait a minute, that's that's wrong. As I read the scripture, I see that Jesus died on the cross and he was enough. That was it. We don't have to go through these religious practices and stuff in order to somehow get more of God's grace. There's nothing left for us to do. It's not Jesus plus something. It is Jesus alone. And that's what that, that term solus Christus means. Christ alone. It is only in him that we get the salvation that we need. Now, we may listen to that. Does anybody disagree with anything that I said? You know, and you say, well, yeah, I can't believe the church did that. But I would suggest to you today that we can struggle with the same thing ourselves, even as those who are children of God, even those who have been born again. It's not just the medieval church, but even many Christians today are tempted to think 
that Jesus has made salvation possible for those who are to do their part. You know, that uh, Jesus is not so much a savior, but he's a facilitator. He's he's sort of a, a, a cosmic doorman. You know, he opens the door to allow us to come into the presence of God. But then it, he leaves it up up to us uh, to to live in such a way that we might stay in the presence of the Lord, which is really not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes I think we are tempted, even as we think about our salvation, to take our eyes off of Christ. And as we do so, oftentimes there's sort of a, a diminishing sense of assurance for our souls as we take our eyes off Christ. But there's also a lack of joy. And uh, I mean, think, for example, you know, it may be, have you ever uh, sinned against the Lord? And it's a sin that you wrestle with and you have wrestled with all your life. And you just think, I can't believe I did that again. And so you come to the Lord and what do you do? You say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. I, I, I can't believe I did that. I, you know, Lord, I, I, I promise that I will be more faithful to be in worship. In, in public worship, I'll, I'll be more careful with my private worship to have my devotions with you. Lord, I, I, I'm just going to try harder not to do that sin again. Do you see what we're offering to the Lord? There's a sense in which we are bringing our efforts to him. We are saying, look, I know I'm a Christian through the blood of Jesus Christ, but I sort of feel like somehow in order to be acceptable to you, I have to add something to that so that you might find me acceptable. And there, there's that temptation. And it doesn't even have to be when we've given in to sin. We can even get caught up in this, you know, especially if you've grown up in the church and, you know, you're, you've been in church, you know, on Sunday mornings. And if you went to a church at church on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, every time the church doors are open, you're there, you know, and there's just a sense in which you can sort of judge whether you're growing in holiness by the things that you do. You know, maybe am I raising my kids? Uh, are we having family worship? Am I catechizing my children? Am I teaching them the scriptures? And we do those things and we feel good about what it is that we are doing, almost like that's a mark of our holiness. But it's not these religious exercises that will fix what ails us. You know, because one question is, is, well, how much is enough? And so, you know, as we come to the Lord and as we are tempted to give in to have that sense of, you know, I have to somehow add my righteousness. What is it that we need to be reminded of that we would not fall into these traps? What is it that we need to remember? Well, I would suggest to you that we need to remember two things. First of all, that Christ is supreme. He is Lord. And I, I think we need to see how great our God is. And the second thing we need to see is, is that Christ is sufficient. What he did on the cross is enough. And that's it. And so when we find ourselves, when we have sunken once again into the depths of sin, that we do not look to our own efforts to say, God, I, I'll try to be better. God, I'll, I'll try to do this so, you know, you'll be happy with me. Instead, we could just look to the cross and say, my older brother did it all. I can trust in what he did. I can add nothing to this. And all I can do is terrible as I feel about my sin. All I can rely upon is what my older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, did. That's where we want to be. So today, that's what we're going to look at as we look at Colossians chapter one. Um, and in verses 15 through 18, we see that sense that Christ is supreme or Christ is preeminent. He's he is uh 
He is the Lord. He is a great God. And the first thing we see in here is that is Christ's relationship to God the Father in verse 15. We see that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Paul begins by saying that Jesus stands really in a very unique relationship with God. He is he is the image of God. The Greek word is really that he's in the exact likeness. It's like an imprint that would come from a seal. Kids, you know what I mean by a seal? I don't mean a seal that goes, or, 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 or. That's not that kind of seal. I'm talking about the seal that they had in the ancient days where they would take a candle and they would like turn it sideways. What happens if you turn a candle sideways? The wax drips, right? And it's really hot, but it's really soft. And then they would take a ring that had like a picture in it or some kind of uh, symbol and they would press it down in the wax and when they pulled it up, guess what would happen? What was on the ring would now be on the wax. And it looked exactly the same. It was, it was an image. It was a, a, an imprint. And so that's what Jesus Christ is to God. You know, if you want to know what God the Father looks like, how many of you have seen God the Father? Nobody has seen God the Father, right? But how do we know what he looks like? As a matter of fact, that's what Philip asked Jesus. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is that exact imprint. And so he's telling us that Jesus himself is in that sense, he is unique. He's not like the angels. He's not a created being. He's not even like us who are uh, as humans who are made in the likeness of God. But as it says in Colossians 2:9, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus Christ is God. And so today there are churches, though, that would not teach that. They would see Jesus as just a good person. They would see him as maybe someone wise to listen to. But we need to understand that Jesus Christ is God. He's, he's had no beginning. He has no end. And he is sovereign. Second of all, we see in verses 15 through 17, Christ's relationship to creation. He says that he's the, uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then it says that by him all things were created. Now, it talks about him being the firstborn of creation. And some people have misinterpreted this verse to mean that somehow Christ was created, like God created Christ, so then Christ could create everything else. But that's really not what he's talking about here. I mean, the Arians... Uh, the early church, that's what they said. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses of our day, they have the same uh, false message as well. Um, but uh, what he's really saying here is that Christ's deity, um, that he, they would say that he, Christ did not exist before he was born. And they would argue that he could not be eternal. But if you look at the word that's used here, it can mean firstborn in terms of chronological, like I am the firstborn in my family. I'm the oldest son. I'm the oldest child, actually, in my family. So I'm the firstborn. It can mean that, but it also can refer to a position of rank. In other words, he is someone who is of the utmost importance, someone who's preeminent. And it's used to indicate one who is supreme. And both Jewish and Greek culture, uh, that word would oftentimes be used of the firstborn because the firstborn wasn't always the oldest. I mean, think about uh, Jacob and Esau. Okay, Esau was the oldest son, but who got the inheritance? Who was considered the firstborn? 
Was it not Jacob? Okay. Um, also, listen to the words of Psalm 89, 27. Uh, God says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so here he's not talking about chronological order. He's talking about status. He's talking about uh, in degree of importance. In the New Testament, in Revelation, the way that John puts it is, is he said that Jesus Christ is what? The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is preeminent. He's most important. And as you look at this passage in Colossians, that's what Paul is talking about is this whole thing of Christ is preeminent in terms of his relationship with the Father, in terms of creation, and in terms of his relationship with the church. And so that's really how we have to take that. Not that Christ is created, but Christ is the creator of all things. And he uses that word all things to stress that there is absolutely nothing that Jesus Christ did not create. And, and even to drive that point home, he talks about how he created the visible and the invisible. Now, just think about the visible just for a moment. I mean, Christ created everything. We could look out here in our world, and we got this beautiful glass window that we can look out now, and we can see, and we can all see all those things. But just, you know, just think of the pictures that you have seen of uh, things that beyond our, that this side outside, maybe the pictures, the landscapes across the world of these beautiful scenes that you've seen, or just even think beyond that to outside of our world, to space, and then just think outside of our, our galaxy. And, and just, it goes on and on and on and on. And Christ created all those things. And those are just the visible things. Imagine also that he created everything that was invisible. And then Paul just begins to pile term upon term upon term as he says that, you know, that he created everything uh, that's in the heavens and that's on earth. Rulers, thrones or dominions or authority, all these things Christ has created. So he is Lord over all creation. But not only did he create that, but we also see here that he sustains that creation as well. And, and not only did he sustain that creation, he upholds it by his mighty right hand, but he also, uh, all of creation was made for the purpose of glorifying God. And we can look at Psalm 19 and other passages of the scripture that talk about that, how the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And so as we come this morning, you know, and even as Satan comes against you, when you are, are tempted to lose heart, when you are tempted to worry, um, just remember that Satan and the world, that even our own flesh was created by Christ. And he is the Lord over all of that. And so we can look to him, you know, in our time of need. And then uh, finally, as far as Christ's supremacy, the last thing is his relationship to the church. We see that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he is, Christ is the authority of the church as the head of the church. You know, I think it's awesome that we are not bound by the commands of men. You guys don't have to listen to what I say. If I say something and it's not in the word of God, I, you got permission to just ignore it. You know, you don't have to listen to it. And there is true freedom in that, that no one can bind our conscience. Only Scripture does. Only God does. And so, 
he comes to us so and he tells us what it is that he wants us uh, to know and to learn. Unfortunately, there have been times in the church, like in the medieval church, in the time of the Reformation, where, like I said, all this tradition came in. But it, that didn't just happen in the Reformation. We can go back to the New Testament and the Pharisees. Weren't they uh, putting expectations upon God's people to do certain things? Uh, Luke eleven forty six. Jesus talks to the lawyers who were the experts in the law, and he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So there's a sense in which the, the church can even put that burden on there. But, you know, praise God, Jesus is the head of the church. And so we can listen to him. But he is not only the authority of the church, but he's the one that, that started the church. He is the one that gave church new life and we glorify him so I, I want you to just stop and think about those things unfortunately I, I told my wife this morning I said I gotta quit picking long longer passages like this because I feel like I'm just skimming over these things really quickly and I don't get the time to stop and to sort of dig in to, and to think about these things but I just think it is magnificent for us to think that God who is our Savior is also the God who created everything that he is the one who is the, the head of the church. And, and when we think about our lives, when we think about our worries, when we think about our woes, to understand how great our God is, it makes you wonder why we worry so much. You know, I think, honestly, we oftentimes don't really, really, really understand who he is. Um, the second thing that we need to see, though, is the sufficiency of Christ. You know, Paul says the implication of Christ being supreme is the implication, that is, of Christ being Lord, is that he is also sufficient. Because he is so great, the work that he has done for us is enough. We don't need to add anything to that. He is sufficient. Look at verses 19 through 22. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now, Christ reconciled us. He didn't like reconcile. He didn't uh, like die to give us the possibility that we might be reconciled. If we somehow live just a certain way, he actually reconciled his people. We are justified in Jesus Christ and we can rest assured to that. So Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for, for our sin. And he did that past, present, and future. For in, so for in those moments when you think that somehow you need to add something to what God has done, my question for you is, what are you going to add? What can we do that's going to somehow give more credibility and you know, uh, develop a relationship with the Father more. There's nothing more that can be done. We have been ad adopted. So no wonder that we read in Isaiah that all of our works are what? Filthy rags. They are, they are an insult to God. You know, imagine that as a church, you just, you just loved your pastor so much. You just loved me so much. And you just said, you know, Pastor Rick, we're going to buy you a brand new car. You know, 
I'm not hinting at anything. I'm just saying, you, you just decide you're going to buy me a brand new car. And so I pull up one Sunday and there's a brand new car. And you say, there you go. That's your gift. We just wanted to express our love and our appreciation. And I said, wow, I appreciate that so much. You know what? I'm really touched by what you did. Here's $7. Could I just give you the $7 to, to, to help out with that car? You go, what? What are you doing, dude? You know, why are you trying to do this? This is an insult. I have paid it all. It is yours. There's nothing you can do more. But how often do we try to take our good works? How often do we try to say, hey, I'm just going to try a little bit harder, do this a little bit better, you know, and that is like the same as trying to pay $7 for a brand new car. So, and it's interesting is, is that the sophisticacy of our Savior is not only so great that we read here that he saves his people, individuals, but notice what he says. And through him to reconcile to himself what? All things. It didn't say all people. He said all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And so what we see here is that what Christ has really done is he has redeemed even the cosmos. He, you know, you think about Romans 8, where it talks about how even the creation yearns for the redemption. That when man fell, creation was affected by that. But one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And so I, I want us to see that our salvation is great and extensive, but that salvation uh, uh, is uh, even beyond just redeeming the church. And so this morning, as we come to a close, I just want us to see Jesus' sufficiency. And, and let me just ask you this as a question, just as we think about that. What is bigger than Jesus for you right now? What's, what's bigger than Jesus in your life? Whatever is big for you, whether it, it could be work, it could be pleasure, it could be money, it could even be a trial that you're going through. Um, you know, all those things that you have um, do nothing. Only Christ is sufficient. But what I want us to ask is, what is crowding our vision of the one that Paul is talking about this morning? Because oftentimes we can. We can be so caught up in the other things of our lives that it's almost like um, kids. Did any of you guys look at the eclipse? Remember several months ago when the eclipse and the moon went over the sun? Sometimes there are those things in our lives that we so focus upon, it almost becomes like that eclipse. It's almost like those things move over and block our vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we don't see him for who he is. The reality is there is nothing that is bigger than Christ. There's nothing that can take his place. But how often we can uh, sometimes think that, that we can forget that Christ has given us all that we need. So the question for us is, do we think that Christ is sufficient? Are we living in such a way as that? Are we delighting in, in the fact that, that he is uh, our, our sufficiency? And so maybe you come this morning, maybe you've had a hard week. Maybe you have struggled in your sin and, and even shame. And, and I mean, maybe there are things that you're wrestling with this morning that you thought, man, if the person sitting right next to me knew what I did this week, they would look at me and they say, 
you are such a hypocrite. Because that's the nature of the shame that, that we can and be had, you know. But the good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ that we've been talking about this morning is the one that while we try to hide our sins because of the shame, he is the one that was openly put to shame to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross so that he might reconcile us to him. He is at peace with us and he wants to show us uh, how peaceful he is when we come to him and we trust in him alone. He comes this morning and he says that to those that will trust him, that his arms are open and his salvation is sure. Peace is available if we would come to him because he is God. He is the creator. He is the head of the church. Brothers and sisters, if we seek Assurance based upon our faith and our faithfulness, we will never find the end for which we seek. We will never have a sense of satisfaction. However, if Christ is our righteousness and our substitutionary penalty is we look to him to be the bearer of that, then we focus upon him. It's only in that that we will find true joy, even in the midst of our struggles, even in the midst of of our temptations with sin. We can have that joy as we look to Christ and we rejoice in his supremacy and his sufficiency. Please bow with me this morning as we meditate upon God's word. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word this day and we pray, Lord, that while these are very familiar words, these are words, Lord, that, you know, maybe we've heard from the time that we're, we've been very small. We, we pray, God, that you would help us truly to um, rely upon you, not just to know these things in our head, but, Lord, to know you personally and to trust you. Lord, may you be the delight of our hearts in those times when we are tempted to struggle uh, and feel the shame and the condemnation of sin in those times when we are tempted to feel the pride of the things that we see good in our lives. Uh, may we instead delight in you. May we give thanksgiving that you have provided everything. Lord, even seen in the text that we read that, you know, you have not only made peace by the blood of of your cross, but that you also took us who were alienated, hostile in mind, doing these evil deeds, and you have reconciled us in the body um, of your flesh in order that you will present us holy and blameless and above reproach before you. Lord, that we know that that which you have begun, you will end, and Lord, we will be with you and see you in heaven. So, God, please give us the assurance of this in our hearts. It is in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Let's uh, stand.